the um, exciting journey that we're about to uh, embark upon is a journey to a book that's uh, probably uh, not that well read, I, I would believe. But we'll see how we get on. Uh, as we travel together. But here we are at the beginning of, of a new year, and therefore um, we've got some resolutions. Anybody made a New Year's resolution? Can anybody remember what you resolved to do last year that you didn't do? I've got loads of things that I didn't do. So has anybody got a New Year's? Has anybody done a New Year's resolution? Or is that old hat now? We don't do that anymore. Do you have a New Year's resolution? Russ, what's your New Year's resolution? Have you made one? Oh, okay. Okay, fantastic. We're resolving, so we pray. Favor upon you as you journey. House buying. Oh. Anybody else make a New Year's resolution? Is anybody not? To, you, 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 what's yours then, James? Are you gonna, you're going to look for a new career. Resolve to step out into something new and different. Fantastic. Is nobody not going to bite their nails? Is nobody, anybody going to lose weight this year? Yeah, of course we are. Hallelujah. Come on. One of the things that, uh, that uh, many people do is they resolve that they're going to read the Bible. I think this is great. Absolutely fantastic. People say, I'm going to read the Bible. I'm going to read the whole Bible, the whole lot. I'm, this year, I'm going to read the Bible, all 1,189 chapters of it. Do you know, to read the Bible in a year, you've got to read, um, well, it's a reading plan for you, it's very simple, uh, three chapters a day and five on Sunday. That gets you through the Bible in a year. Actually, that gets you through the Bible and gives you six extra chapters that um, you can use for those ones that you might miss during the year. Three chapters a day and five on Sunday, the Bible in a year. But the thing about it is when you start with a Bible in the year, and, and, and I've met many people and, and I also remember the times when I struggled with this, was that you start with Genesis and that's cracking. There's 50 chapters there and you go whacking through that and, and it's, it's good. It's, it's got a flow. There's a story. There's some interesting bits in there that happen. Um, but it's also, oh, we can, yeah, this is good. And then we get into the second book of the Bible, which is the book of uh, Exodus. And now we're following what's going on with the children of Israel, bringing them out of slavery. And that's, yeah, okay, we can see how this works. And then we hit this book called uh, Leviticus. And I call this the Leviticus Wall. And you hit that, and you just think to yourself, is my life worth living? Is there something better I could be doing with my time than reading this stuff? And then we ask, is it, you know, what I'm reading about is a bit primitive. It seems to be a very old way of doing things. And you look at the stuff that goes on with the slaughtering of thousands of animals. A bit barbaric, bloodthirsty. And and we think, actually, at the end of the day, is this really just irrelevant? Is this necessary? Uh, I don't see how this all fits together. And then ultimately, we turn it around and we say, well, actually, uh, it's all legalistic. 
and therefore we know that Jesus came uh, to fulfill the law and we are walking in a place called grace and all of that stuff in Leviticus, we, we can forget it. that's if we want to justify not reading the book of Leviticus. Or you can turn around and you can say there is something about the fact that this book is still in the Bible. It has stayed the test of time. It's an important element. It's recognized as the the centerpiece of something called the, the Torah, the first five books of the law. The beginning of our scriptures, the major part there of the Jewish scriptures, the Pentateuch, one of the five. Therefore, it must have something to say because it has been there. The trouble is, though, we start to think that maybe if I just skip over it, there's uh, nothing in there really that's going to touch me in, in, in a way. But I know that scripture tells me that all scripture is God-breathed and, and is useful into my life. Um, therefore, I just read it and just see if by osmosis, some it might just come in. And I ask this question, how are you doing on loving your neighbor? You know, whereabouts have you heard that before? That phrase, love your neighbor. Well, the normal response, of course, would be Jesus. Jesus said it, didn't he? Here's one of the points where uh, Jesus says it in Mark 12. Uh, He talks about what's important from the law of the commandments. Uh, First is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. The thing about it is Jesus got it from somewhere. And Jesus actually got it from the book of Leviticus. How about that? The first time we are called to love our neighbors is in Leviticus chapter 19. So there is a recognition that this book was known by, absorbed by, lived out by Jesus. And as followers of Christ, this needs to be something that we're allowing to impact our lives. Love your neighbor. Do you know what loving your neighbor is all about? Not just number 46 or number 42 that circle my house. What does loving our neighbors mean? Do you know what that means? When we're told to love our neighbors, do you remember that story of the Samaritan? Do you remember the good Samaritan? Do you remember that story? There was a question there about who is my neighbor? Anybody got an idea who our neighbor is? Anyone who needs help. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Now, this is the bit where I do a little bit of advertising and ask you whether God might be calling you to be a good neighbor. We have an amazing choir coming over to join with us. Now, this is something really quite amazing because my friend, Pastor Robert, who you've met here and you've also heard Pete, from Uganda who came back over and, uh, and shared with you back in 2017. But they've got this opportunity because the school across the road have paid for them all to fly to the UK. Now, the thing is, when Pastor Robert had this invitation from the school to bring a choir over or students over from his school, Bexhill High took it on, not Bexhill High, uh, <laughs> Brighton Hill, 
<laughs> Brighton Hill Community School took it on board that they would uh, fund it, and they have raised over £9,000 to fly these guys over. And they're going to be part of a school week. They come on the 20th of January, and they're going to be immersed in the life of the school. They're going to lessons. They're going to be participating just to have a little bit of a, a, a culture exchange. But the thing is, Pastor Robert turns around and says, well, if I'm bringing these young people who've never stepped out of the, their village, pretty much, all the way to the UK, we're not going to just fly in for a week and fly back. So he's making connections to be over here for a bit longer. So they're actually in Basingstoke for 10 days before they go away, um, heading up to Stoke-on-Trent. But we need places for them to sleep. We don't know the full itinerary at the moment, and I'm going to be working with TIFF and sorting out some extra things for them to do. But the first week is all going to be based at the, uh, the local school. Then they're here for a weekend. We might do something Saturday night that they're here, and then they're here for the services Sunday. I've asked whether they could be involved in the unity service for one church, their unity service uh, at the end of January. But more than anything is that they would love somebody to be neighborly. Would you take a couple and share your home with them? We'll get some notes about what you can feed them and what you can't. Actually, you can feed them anything because they just are so appreciative of everything. And they just want to be loved on. So we're the neighbors. Here's an opportunity. And um, I, I don't apologize for putting it out like this in the middle of a sermon. We need some people who are willing. We've sent out emails. We've got zero response. I know there's a few who said, you know, I'm, I'm okay, but we've got nothing come back at the moment saying, do you know what? I'm happy. There's only going to be 13 altogether. I believe, maybe 14. But we need some beds. Okay. Sam, can I help you? Okay, fantastic. Chat with, chat with me later. We'll sort that out. Okay. Can you just be mindful? Uh, Jesus said, uh, love your neighbor. We've got to be loving our neighbor. Here's an opportunity. They're flying eight and a bit hours. Well, that's if you did it direct. They're actually going via um, Amsterdam, I think. But can we just love on them? Do you know, you may think that you haven't got much. <laughs> Spend some time with them and you realize how much you've got. And to be able to share it with them, what a beautiful thing to do. Loving our neighbors. Anyway, we're going to go back to Leviticus. This is the start of the book of Leviticus. And the Lord, this is how it goes. It says this, the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. We're just starting 27 chapters in the book of Leviticus. We're going to take a journey and see what God opens up to us. Because I believe there is absolute gold amongst these chapters We start with this one. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. One of the ways that you can actually translate the beginning of Leviticus is that the Lord uh, God continued calling to Moses. And when you see something like that, he's calling to Moses, he's continuing to call to Moses. We've got to ask ourselves the question, what is all that about? Well, here it is. I I love this word. And this this just tickled me when I first uh, came across this Hebrew word. Um, Vayikra. Can you say that? Vayikra? Vayikra. Say it again. It sounds like something similar, but we don't like to use the word. But anyway, Vayikra. 
Vayikra. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> Vayikra is a Hebrew word that means that God is constantly talking. And actually, beyond just talking, he's actually calling. He's calling. And here in the scriptures in, in Leviticus chapter 1, we recognize that Vayikra, he is calling to Moses. We call the book of Leviticus, Leviticus. But if you were to go to a Hebrew scholar or into a synagogue and you talk about the book of Leviticus, they would know what you're talking about, but they wouldn't use that word. The book that they would recognize is the book Vayikra. So go to a synagogue and ask to read from Vayikra and they will know exactly what you're talking about. Because each of the books of the Bible is usually pulled out, the name is pulled out by the first things that are mentioned in it. This is what is mentioned in Leviticus, that the Lord God is calling and constantly calling to Moses. So if he's constantly calling, we've got to ask ourselves the question, what was going on before? Because it seems like we've joined the story a, a, a little way through. Now, Carol's got one of those amazing gifts that um, we could be watching a TV program and then she'd just get up and walk out of the room and do something else and then come back and just stay with the story. Whereas if I get up, I put it on pause. This is one of the things you can do these days, of course. I, I put it on pause. I can't, I, I can't miss anything. Now, there are some times when Carol gets up and goes out, I put it on pause and wait for her to come back, and then put it back on again, as if like she's not going to... Because I think there's some stuff here you can't miss. And here is Moses being told, very early here, that God is calling to him, and continually calling to him. And we've got to say, well, when was you calling to him before? So let's have a little bit of a look back, because Leviticus follows the book called Exodus. Here's a little bit of an overview of Exodus. Are you ready for this one? Exodus begins when God's not about. That's how it seems to start, that God's not around. He's absent. There is a people who were God's people who are living without any uh, connection with God. They find themselves uh, in slavery with the Egyptians. Um, the Israelites are therefore being culturally indoctrinated with the ways and the gods of the people of Egypt. And they're very much oppressed by Pharaoh. How did they get to be an oppressed people? Well, you can check that out if you go back to the next book back, which is the book of Genesis. And then we find the story uh, of Joseph. Do you remember Joseph? And he was working with Pharaoh and he moved up in the rank. Do you remember all of that? That's all part of it. Okay. So what we find out, though, is the book of Exodus starts off by reminding us that Joseph's dead. A new king's come to town who didn't know about Joseph. This guy came to power in Egypt. So this Pharaoh has stepped in and he is overseeing what's going on with the Israelites. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become too much for us. They're too numerous for us. Come, we must deal, deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, will join our enemies, fight against us and, and leave the country. So the Pharaoh is concerned about the growing number of Israelites who are in slavery with him. We've got to be very careful about what's going on. 
So the amount of work that they do is increased. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them and to force them in labor. And they built, oh, this is good, Pithom, okay, and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. Just, just picking up on that thing, the whole thing about store cities. Store cities were cities that were set aside to be places to receive crops and goods and whatever and hold on to them so that there would be a resource to lean in on in times of famine. Is that right? Do you remember that? That sort of thing? Okay, so we've got store cities. Now, the thing about it is, you've got a people who are slaves. They are oppressed. They are underdogs. They are uh, mistreated. And they are now being forced to build cities that are going to hold on to the resources that they are producing under slavery, and then when difficulty is going to come in the future, if the difficulties come, the very thing that they have just been building is the very thing that they're going to go back to to get a handout from when things get tough. You've got oppressed people just being oppressed and then oppressed again, and they're involved in things that just makes their life even more a sign of absolute injustice. They were oppressed. The more they multiplied and spread, so the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. I'm just the whole understanding that they are going to be pushed to their absolute limit. The ethos was systematic injustice and equality. This is what it goes on to say in Exodus 1.14. It says this, that they made their lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar. And I'm reading this and I'm thinking, where was the last time that I read about brick and mortar? Flip back to Genesis 11 and you find the building of the Tower of Babel. And in the Tower of Babel, it was all about uh, building a building that uh, people could recognize that we are God's. We are powerful. And this is exactly what Pharaoh wants to do. And this is exactly the environment that the Israelites find themselves living in, is that they are uh, amongst a nation who are building themselves up to be gods. So brick and mortar, they're getting involved in that with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. Don't you just hate being used? Have you ever been used before? People use you. Do you know, I I was only of any help in that one situation. So they had me for that, and then they got rid of me. Used. You use things. You shouldn't use people. Relationships that people sometimes have, they have those relationships that that might take them to a a different place. You feel used, abused, dirty, unvalued. You only wanted to be my friend in my relationship with me for this benefit. That's sick. It makes us feel unvalued, unloved. Worthless. But that's exactly what the Egyptians wanted the Israelites to feel. Absolutely worthless. And the phrase just comes up there that the Egyptians used them. How awful was that? Then in the midst of that, 
The trouble is these Israelites keep multiplying. Pharaoh feels threatened. You know how the story goes on. He comes along and says that uh, to the, the nannies. This is quite amazing, really. Speaks to the nannies and says, when you are going and finding yourself helping to deliver uh, Israelite children into the world, if it's a boy, kill it. If it's a girl, let it live. Boys are expendable, it seems. But the Lord was so gracious towards the nannies because they did something really brilliant. They decided to ignore the Pharaoh. And they came back with an excuse. They said, do you know, the thing is, Pharaoh, it's a bit like this. He said, these Israelites, they don't half have babies fast. We get a phone call or a text message to say, a baby's on the way. We pick up our bag. We get the hot water. We get the towels. By the time we get to the Israelites' house, the baby's out. And they've hidden it. And it's beautiful how how God turns around and says, because of their action, he was kind to the midwives. And the people continue to increase in number. So we have a gathering of people, a nation of people in slavery growing significantly. And it's causing an upset for Pharaoh. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. And this is what happened. The people of God started to groan. They recognized that the place that they were was not a great place to be. And they wanted to be out of it. So they're groaning. And the beautiful thing is, and these groans that they cried out were heard by God. When you feel that you're at the end of your tether, when you feel everything has been expended that you can do anything about and you're now at a loss and you are groaning before God, recognize that he hears you. God hears the groans of his people. Why me? That's a good one. Why me? And listen for his response. God hears groans. And groans were catching his ear and action was going to be taken. The thing about it is, at the beginning of Exodus 2, uh, Moses comes into the world, uh, bull rushes situation. He ends up being brought up in, in Pharaoh's household. Then he's out on the hillside by the time it comes to uh, Exodus 3. And God speaks to him. And this is beautiful because when the Bible tells us in Exodus 3, 4, when the Lord saw that he had gone to look over to the burning bush, you remember that story? God called to him. Same word. Look at that word. Ve'ikra. Ve'ikra. This is the same word that begins the book of Leviticus. God is calling to and constantly calling to Moses and he recognizes that this bush is burning, takes off his shoes and stands where he is told is holy ground. And God speaks to him. And says, I am sending you to rescue my people. Of course, Moses puts his hands up and says, you know, to tell you the truth, I'm not really the best person to do this. I'm pretty badly equipped for this. I'm okay with this sheep situation, but I don't know about rescuing a people and certainly not from Pharaoh. But God equips him and sends him out. And ultimately, things change. There's all sorts of issues that are going on. You might remember the phrases of let my people go and Pharaoh saying no because God had 
harden Pharaoh's heart. Then they get this uh, point where Pharaoh releases them. Off they go. You can go. But even though they've been sent, they are still going to be chased by the Egyptian army. They're in the wilderness years. As you go through Exodus chapter 13 to 18, they're wandering around. There's a lot of whinging and moaning. How long do they spend in the wilderness? 40 years. It's quite a quick walk, actually, if you go direct from where they were going to where they needed to head to. But 40 years. Wilderness. But out there, they had also the the Sinai encounters. Chapters 19 through to 40. And in the Sinai encounters, we start off with, with the gathering of God's people. And there's a mountaintop experience where the Ten Commandments are given. And what we see here with the Ten Commandments is the start of what uh, is going to be a change for the children of Israel. We start with Exodus where God is absent and distant and nowhere to be seen. There is a point in time where there is a change where God hears the cries of his people. And there is a movement now I can see through the book of Exodus where the God of all holiness wants to connect with a people. And in connecting with the people, he gives them the Ten Commandments. And the first of the Ten Commandments is what? Can you remember what it is? You shall have no gods before you. It's a marriage. This is what the Ten Commandments are about. It's about a marriage. It's about an associating, an unholy people getting into a relationship with a holy God. So let's start from the first point. It's that you can't do double dating. This is how it works with marriage. I don't know if anybody's ever worked this out yet. I see a, a lot of uh, error in community where marriage is uh, spoiled because somebody else is brought in. That's not the way it's meant to happen. You see, when a man and a woman decide that God is bringing them together and they make a commitment to each other, that commitment is meant to be just between the two. That's how I see marriage. It's between the two. And this marriage that's happening between a people, a nation, and God, God puts it in at the very, very beginning. You will have no gods before me. They've come from a culture where Egyptians had gods for everything. And God is saying, if you're going to be my people, you've got to be a people who are set apart with me as your only focus. There's no room in the bed for somebody else. And it's the same as God speaks to us. Right here and right now. He says, as we are going to walk in a relationship together, as we are going to live out what it means to be the people of God, then I must be your God. No other gods except me. I'm number one. And as you go through Exodus, you find that 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 relationship is being built. Then there is this point where God is distant. He's 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 up a mountain. He's he's connecting with one guy, Moses. And there is a desire for him to come and dwell with his people. And if you read through Exodus, you come to a point where the tabernacle is designed. That means there's there's a place of meeting, a holy place of meeting. And by the time you get to the, the last bit of the book of Exodus, you find that very place where God wants to reside is being built. It says this here, then the Lord says to Moses, set up the tabernacle, the tent of meeting on the first day of the first month. And then as you go through Exodus 40, you'll find this phrase comes up 38 times. As the Lord commanded Moses. 
as the Lord commanded Moses, as the Lord spoke to Moses, as the Lord continued to speak to Moses about this place of meeting. And it comes to the end point at the end of the book of Exodus. And Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and the altar, put up the curtain at the entrance of the courtyard. Moses had finished his work and he said, Lord, I've done everything that you wanted me to do. And this is what happens. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God comes and makes himself at home amongst a people. I don't want to be distant. I want to be with you, right with you, right where you are. I'm coming to live with you. So the journey through Exodus is absent to God who hears, a God who rescues, and then a God who resides. He's there with them, right at the meeting point of where everything's going to change for them. We recognize that God is looking for a people that he can call his, and this is exactly the same as our God today. is looking for a people that he can call his. Ex, uh, Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1. That's all we're going to get to today. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Vayikra. But we know what the Vayikra is because we've just traveled the journey through the book of Exodus. That's when God was talking to Moses through the situation in the bulrushes. That's when God was talking to Moses as he was out on the fields looking after the sheep. That's when he was talking to Moses as he and Aaron went in to meet with Pharaoh and to discuss how my people were going to be let go. That is how God has spoken to Moses as he led the children of Israel out into the wilderness. That's how God has spoken to Moses as Moses raised himself up a mountain to inquire of the Lord, what is it that needs to happen that we could be in a marriage together? That's how God spoke to Moses as he drew for him the plans of a place of residence. That's how God spoke to Moses. And we come to this point at the beginning of the book of Leviticus and we read these words and the Lord continued to speak. God speaking. God is calling. And as he calls to Moses, he calls to you and to me as we begin a new year in his presence. We are a people who are called. God who has called you into fellowship with his son Jesus Christ is faithful. He has called you into fellowship. He wants you in a relationship. He desires to walk with you. Intimacy, closeness, not at a distance. In 1 Peter we read these words, but just as he has called you is holy, so be holy All of you, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. Here's a question, where is it written? Bet you didn't know. Leviticus, how about that? I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves, be holy because I am holy. I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt. Just read about that. Be holy because I am holy. And the book of Leviticus is a manual of life, I suppose, in the most simplest sense of how can a pure and holy God be in relationship with a people who aren't. And that's the journey that we're going to be traveling. How? Can we take the things that we learn through the book of Leviticus of how the people of God learned to walk in a relationship of absolute holiness?
1 Peter. For you are a chosen people. This is you and me. We're a chosen people. God has chosen us. We're a royal priesthood. As we start to go through the book of Leviticus, you'll find that the priestly role is described in absolute beautiful detail. You're a royal priesthood. You need to know what to do as a priest. You know how to dress. I mean, there's stuff that we should be wearing. Oh, we're going to be looking at, which is going to be quite interesting. You thought Malcolm looked funny with his camel gear. You wait and see. We can see what we can do. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praise of him who called you, who called you and continues. He continues to call you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So we start the book. We start the book by recognizing that we are encountering a God who calls us. And continues to call us, not just Moses, but you and me. And as we begin this amazing new year, this new decade, I recognize that God is going to be calling us into something of an adventure that is beyond our wildest dreams. Let's be still for a few moments before we start to draw things to a close. You are called. You are called. And calling means that you've got to come out from somewhere to go somewhere new. A calling is that you would do something different from what you normally do. It may be that you do something different in the place you already are. You're called. But it may mean that you're being called out of where you are to go to somewhere new. And when God calls, it's very, very simple. We recognize that God's call is in his absolute total awareness of your journey to this point in time. Nothing you have done, nowhere that you've been, nothing that you've experienced has been a, oh my goodness, I didn't realize that moment for God. He knows everything. And if he called you when things were better and now things ain't great, that doesn't mean his call has stopped. If he called you when there was money in the bank and now things are a little bit tight, that doesn't mean that his call has stopped. This is who we are. This is who God tells us we are. You've been chosen. You have been chosen. May this be the year, above any year in the past, 
where you recognize what you have been chosen for. Well, the calling over your life truly is. And as we start to unpack what it means to be in relationship with a holy God, I am absolutely sure that God's going to lead you to some exciting places.